before we get started, uh, anybody ever have a moment in life where you just look at something like nature-wise and just think, oh, that's awesome or that's amazing? Like, has anybody ever been to, say, the Grand Canyon or to the Alps or anything like that? Or been to like a giant city, a big city, like New York City, and just gone, wow, this is amazing. Uh, or just stand in awe of something. Um, well, I'm just going to even this out. There we go. Okay, I can't be too picky. I like everything nice and even and straight and stuff. I got to tell myself, don't worry about that. You can't do that right now. Anyways, when uh, going through life, you kind of look at things. You see, okay, this is awesome or this is amazing, and you just stand in awe of that. Um, but I want to I let you guys know something. When you become a parent, that changes a little bit about what you find amazing or what you find awesome. So earlier this week, my son, who is not yet two, looks at me, points at his bottom, and says, poop. And I was just like, yes, this is the most amazing thing and awesome thing ever. And I'm like, I checked him, and well, he's in the process of going. And so I'm like, this is amazing. My kid knows that he's going. It's time to potty train. No more buying diapers. Well, not yet, at least. But I'm, I'm just looking at this like, yes, this is awesome and amazing. And I just sat there, and I was just like, man, I'm really old. Like, this is like, I was one of those people who just made fun of the people who talked about their little kid and be like, man, this is awesome. My kid's pooping and stuff. And then I'm just sitting here like, oh, man, I am that person. So this is what you all have to look forward to when you have children. You will be that person one day if you have kids. And you will be like, this is awesome. And you'll think it's more great than any place or anything you've seen. Um, and it's, it's, it's fun is what it is. We'll put it like that. Um, Anyways, so we're picking up in Luke 21. This story does have a point to it. So we're picking up in Luke 21. Uh, so we've just finished last week. Uh, in Dave's talk, we were in the temple. Uh, and Dave was talking about the cornerstone. Do you all remember that? Where the apostles were looking at it, and they were amazed at it, and then Dave showed us all these pictures of the temple, and they showed us this video, and they were talking about just this massive stone that they built, and that they were looking at, and they were just, they were just standing in awe of it, and so this is where we pick, out, pick up at, is like right after they're in the temple, they leave, and then they walk outside, so they're really close to the temple still, they're kind of looking at it, they're amazed at the temple, uh, and they go over to the Mount of Olives, which is kind of like right across the way, and the apostles come up to Jesus, they ask him a question, and then Jesus goes on this really long discourse. And this is what's known as the Olivet Discourse, which is going to be covered here in Luke 21, but then we can also find parallel passages in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. Um, but we pick up here, and the apostles are standing amazed, we're going to pick up in verse 5, chapter 21 of Luke. The apostles are kind of amazed. They're looking at it. They're like, oh, look at all this grand stuff and all this fantastic stuff of the temple. Isn't this, this temple looks great. And while they're making these comments, Jesus responds to them. So he picks up and he says in verse 5, it says, As some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, These things that you see... 
the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus, all of a sudden, while they're looking at us, being amazed and everything, kind of is a party pooper a little bit. Like, hey, don't be so amazed. It's not going to be here this long. And then goes on into this whole thing of prophecy and saying, hey, what's going to happen here in the near future, but then also in the distant future? Um, So while the apostles are standing amazed, Jesus proceeds to tell them about this. And then some of the apostles start to ask him, well, when are these things going to happen? So they wander off a little bit. While, they're, while he's by himself, they say, hey, tell us about this. What do you mean not one stone is going to be left on one stone? What are you saying? What are you talking about? Because they were actually in the process of still building this temple. The temple actually wasn't finished construction until after Jesus' death. And then in the year 70, uh, that's when the temple ends up being destroyed, really not too long after it gets completed. So they're all curious. They're like, okay, we see it's being built. What do you mean it's going to get destroyed? Well, Jesus answers, but not directly. So he gives this answer of the close future, but then also the distant future. He starts to go into prophecy of around 70 AD, and then also at the end of times. So picking up in verses 10 through 12, this is what Jesus says to them. Then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Now, if I were one of the apostles, and I'm just, like, just standing there and being like, oh, man, look at this place. It's so beautiful and amazing. And then Jesus goes, well, it's going to be destroyed, you know. And then I go, wait, what are you talking about? And then he starts telling me stuff like this. Man, I would be in shock. I would be like, wait, um, that's, that's not what I asked you. But what are you saying? So then he continues, picking up in verse 16 and 17. He says, you will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will, su- they will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. And then he continues after that in verses 20 and 24. And Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Verse 24. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then he continues in 25 and 26. Then there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among nations bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then later on, in verses 29 through 33, he compares his second coming to that of a fig tree. And he says, so a few weeks ago, we talked about a fig tree. This week, we're talking about a fig tree again. But this time, when he's talking about the fig tree, he says, hey, you know when a fig tree has blossoms on it or blooms? And they're like, well, yeah. He's like, when that happens, you know summer is coming because you know winter's done. You know summer is coming because something has blossoms on it. They're like, oh, okay. But then they're all still sitting there wondering, 
Jesus, what are you, what are you saying? Because the only thing we asked you was, what do you mean about this destruction of the temple? And then Jesus starts going on this, this whole discourse about the temple being destroyed, what's going to happen in the future, all these calamities, all these trials, everything that's just horrible that's going to happen. And they're like, wait, um, this, this isn't what we asked. And I, I can assume the, the apostle who was looking at the temple being like, hey, isn't this a great place? He's probably like, man, I shouldn't have said anything. I shouldn't even looked at that building. What is Jesus saying here? Uh, and at times we're kind of like the same because when we get to passages like this in Luke 21, which starts talking about things to come in the future, some of these we know have already happened because some of the, the temple's already been destroyed. That was back in AD 70. So we see, okay, that's already happened. But some of this still hasn't happened. This is still going to be in the future. And sometimes, I mean, I'll say, most of you did not grow up in the 80s. But if you grew up in the 80s, like some of us did, uh, you would definitely know that a lot of people were very much into the book of Revelation in the 80s and in the book of Daniel and then in this passage in Luke. And they were very much romanticizing the idea of the end times and being like, man, look at everything that's going to be destroyed. Look how it's going to happen. Look at this. Look at that. Like just really making these grand ideas about everything that's about to happen at the end and just all the devastation and getting caught up in that, but missing the whole point of what Jesus is actually saying here in this passage, and then also in Revelation. Um, but we're not going to go to Revelation today, guys. If you want to have a discussion, we can later on, but we're not going to go there today. We're just going to stay here in this text, look at this a little bit, look at a couple other places, but we're not going to get, we're not going to go that far. Um, I was in the 80s a little bit. So I kind of want to stay away from Revelation because, man, it was crazy back then. So let's not, let's not go there. But what we're going to look at is we're going to see what was actually going on and what Jesus was saying. Because, I mean, we kind of skipped around here in the passage a little bit. What else was being left out? What did we not look at? Well, if we look back, verses 13 through 15, what does Jesus say here? In verses 13 through 15 of Luke 21, he says, This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Now, this comes right after Jesus says that some of you will be betrayed and you'll be taken to the courts. Now, there's a, part, there's a passage in the Bible that says, be prepared to give a defense for your faith. Uh, Jesus is not contradicting that passage here. That passage is found in 1 Peter 3. Jesus isn't contradicting that passage. Uh, this translation in Luke is a little bit hard to understand. So to help us to understand, it's really nice when you have a parallel passage in either Matthew or Mark. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually go over to Mark and see how Mark wrote what Jesus' response was. And it helps us to understand a little bit better what Jesus is actually saying here. So in Mark 13, verses 10 through 11, Jesus says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So we see from looking at the parallel passage that Jesus isn't telling you, hey, don't not to give a defense for your faith or not to be ready for when somebody comes and asks you hard questions or anything like this. 
But he's telling you, look, do not depend on your own power or your own ability. Because oftentimes, has anybody, I've had this conversation with a few people before, where it's like, you know, we don't experience the type of persecution here that some other nations do. And some people look at it and be like, wow, man, I can't, I can't understand how they can endure that type of persecution or how they can give a defense for their faith or that they can stand in front of somebody who's willing to kill them and say, no, I'm not going to deny Jesus. Well, a lot of people are like, man, I don't, I don't think I can do that. That's kind of what this passage is getting at. This passage is telling you that this isn't of your own strength, that it's going to be up to you all on your own to be able to stand up to somebody who is trying to persecute you, who is bringing you before the courts, who's telling you to deny Jesus. He's not telling you that, you know, you're going to be alone, so, and, you know, just don't prepare for it because, you know, whatever happens, happens. No, he's telling you, he will be with you. He will help you through this. He will give you the faith that you need to make it through a situation like that. And so that's why we can look at people and around the world who have experienced this. And we can look here in the Bible and we can see those who have gone through persecution or calamities or anything like this, that they are able to stand up and say, no, I will not deny Jesus, but that I will trust him and, and trust what he is doing for me and what he has done for me. Uh, so now that we understand that part of the passage, we're going to continue in Luke. We're going to look at this next part here. Uh, so in verses 18 through 19, Jesus says that, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Uh, so this comes right after he talks about that you will be hated, that you're going to be betrayed by family, by sons, by fathers, by daughters, by mothers. Basically, anybody's going to betray you. Friends, family, if you are a follower of Christ, this is what you're going to experience is what he's telling them. And then he goes on and says, but not a hair of your head will, will perish by your endurance, you will gain your lives. So this is not talking about your actual physical hair. Because we see later on in this passage that Jesus actually says, some of you are going to be murdered. Well, how can you be murdered and not a hair on your head gets hurt? So if we think about it logically, we can be like, well, that can't be exactly what he's saying. So really what Jesus is saying here is spiritually, Spiritually, you will not be harmed. Spiritually, you will not be taken from the Father. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to him, and you're not going to be taken from him. People can do what they want to hurt you here on earth, but you're not going to, God is not going to lose you. And so we can look at this parallel passage. This one we're going to look at in Matthew 24, uh, verses 13 and 14. So he says it a little bit different here. Uh, in Matthew, he says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this part where it talks about those who endure, it sounds kind of like the last one. The last verse in Luke 19 says, but by, by your endurance you will gain your lives. This is talking about Jesus keeping us secure, and that through this, that we will continue on, that we are not going to be removed from him. And the point that he's making here is that the point of our trials and persecution is the preservation of our souls by God and the advancement of the gospel to all peoples. Do we see that here at the very end? 
in verse 14. He says, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So what he's telling us is that this, these things that are going to happen, this persecution that's going to happen to the church immediately, right there in their time and then in the future as well, it's not just for nothing. It's not that, oh, just, you know, these people are just going to be evil to you. No, it's that the kingdom will be advanced through this. But how do we know that the kingdom is advanced through persecution? Well, I mean, your first clue is just to look around. You're all believers, are you? Most of you, I would say, are believers. Most of you claim to be believers and followers of Christ. Well, how did we get that gospel? Well, we got the gospel through the apostles. And most of the apostles were, were martyred. Most of them were killed. I think only one, John, was not killed. All the rest were. And so we see what Jesus is telling us. This is true, that this persecution of the has caused this advancement of the gospel. So we're going to look at verses 27 through 28. We're starting to close out here in his discourse. And he says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So he's saying that this being paralleled to Matthew. He's talking about his gospel going out to everyone. So once we see that the gospel has gone out to all peoples, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, we see that at the end of Matthew, we see that Jesus will return and that we have hope in his return because then our redemption will be complete. In verses 34 through 36, I don't have a slide for this, but it warns us to be watchful for Jesus' return. And it is to encourage us in how we are to live. He says that we are not to live uh, as if Jesus is far off or that he's just distant, that he's not going to come back, or that we will never see him in our lifetime. But rather that we are to live as if Jesus' return were near, that it was imminent, like it's going to happen tomorrow. This is what he tells us. This is how you should live. So let's look at uh, really like a Psalm 145, verses 18 through 20. It says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. So when trials, tribulations, and calamities come, we can take hope that the Lord is near and hope in the work that he is doing in us. So Jonathan Edwards uh, summarizes this passage here, this Olivet Discourse, this way. So he says, The grand finale of the gospel preached by Jesus is that there is a sure hope for the future. It is grounded not in history or logic or intuition, but in the word of Jesus, in the emphatic declaration that in those days, humanity will no longer usurp history, but, but relinquish it to its Lord and maker, 
who will return in glory and justice to, to, give, to condemn evil and suffering and gather his own to himself. So Edwards here is summarizing everything that Jesus is saying, and he's saying, look, Jesus isn't just out here preaching some gloom and doom that the temple's going to be destroyed, that everybody's just going to die, that all this horrible stuff is going to happen. What Jesus is telling them, he's, he's giving them a message of hope. He's saying that there is hope when we see these things happening. There is hope when there is trouble within our lives, when we go through trials, when we go through tribulations. And he says there is hope for those who are persecuted and those who are martyred. And what is the hope? The hope is that Jesus is near, that he is there, that he cares for us, that he loves us. So we're going to look at, we're going to look at a few more passages and see what does that hope look like when it's played out in the end, what happens. So in Romans 8, Paul lays out for us this great hope that we have. And the great hope, the great hope that we have is that we will be glorified with Christ himself. So in Romans 8, 16 through 17, Paul says, The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So he's telling us here in Romans 8 that, hey, every trial and tribulation that we go through, again, it isn't just wasted. It isn't just something that, you know, happens because bad people do it. It isn't just happening just because it's going to happen. It's that, look, God is sovereign in this situation as well. And he is doing a work in you. And he is going to glorify you in the end. That word glorified actually means to be made perfect in the end. So we're going to look at this next, this, we're going to continue in Romans 8, uh, this next portion, 18 through 19. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. So in this passage here, he tells us everything that you go through all the sufferings, all the trials, everything, once this is done, we aren't going to look back and be like, man, I, I wish I never went through that or anything, but we are going to look back at it. We're going to say, none of that compares to where we are now. None of that compares to this glorified state that we are in with Christ, who is glorified and then glorifies us with himself. And then I think this is the most interesting part of this passage here. Verse 19. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Have you ever thought about that? That the earth itself, all of creation, plants, animals, water, earth, all of it understands who God is and actually waits for God to finish his work and to reveal us, us who are in him at the end, glorified with him and present us to it. I think that's just, to me, that's one of the most amazing verses because when I just go outside and look at nature, I'm like, oh, cool, it's nature, whatever kind of thing. 
but that it's actually waiting for God to do his thing. We're going to finish out this passage here. Romans 29, 8, 29 through 30. This is where he finishes, and he says, this is what he is doing in your life right now. And this is what he has been doing throughout all of redemptive history. And all of this culminates in being glorified. That is the end of the redemption history. Kind of the beginning, too. Verse 29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here's a redemptive work. Here in a couple weeks, we're actually going to see Jesus' crucifixion. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus' trials and everything right before his crucifixion. Then we're going to talk about the crucifixion. Then we're going to talk about the resurrection. And this part right here, those whom he justified, that takes place right there at the cross. That's the beginning of this redemption that we see. And then the fulfillment is glorified. All these things, it's really interesting because he talks about all these things as, in the, as if they were past tense. It's all written in the Greek in past tense. But he's actually talking about the future at the same time. But he's telling us, but Jesus has already accomplished all of this. This is a guarantee. Everything that you go through, Jesus has already guaranteed that he will get you through this and that he will glorify you and bring you to himself in the end. Mike McKinley puts it this way. He says, the return of Christ is then the grand finale of the gospel. On the cross, Jesus purchased our redemption. When he returns, he will consummate it or fulfill it. So with that in closing, when we look at passages like this, either in Luke, Daniel, Revelation, or anything, and we kind of see all these fantastic things that it says, oh, these things are going to happen. And we try to sit there and we try to be like, well, is it going to happen like this? Is it going to go like this? That's not the point of the passage. Is not for us to figure out how things are going to happen or what they're going to look like or what calamities may come. Or, you know, I mean, I've, I've heard all the different stories. I'm not going to go into them. I almost did. I'm not going to go into them. I've heard all the different stories. The point of all of those is that in the end, Jesus is glorified, and he's going to bring you to himself, and he's going to glorify you as well. And you are going to be in this perfect state with him. And in the end, you're going to be like, well, nothing that I've ever gone through in life can compare to the glory, to the magnificence, to fill in the blank, use whichever adjective you want to. Nothing will compare to your life with Christ in the end when he comes back and he finishes all of redemptive history. Uh, with that, you all can go to your breakouts. I believe that seniors are outside. Oh, before we do that, your questions, if you fill out your question cards and everything, just turn in all your cards.